Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors, senior executives, and thought leaders on issues that are important for those governing organizations. My guest today is Jim Deloach. Jim is a founding managing director of Protivity and a member of the firm's solutions leadership team. He has over 40 years of experience working with companies to improve corporate governance practices and integrating risk management with strategy, planning, and performance. Jim has authored several books, including Enterprise-Wide Risk Management, Strategies for Linking Risk and Opportunity, which was published by the Financial Times in June of 2000. He's published more than 300 articles over the past 15 years, covering various aspects of governance, risk, and internal controls. Jim was one of 25 recipients of the Consultant of the Year Award from Consulting Magazine in 2011, and from 2012 through 2018, he was named to the National Association of Corporate Directors Directorship 100 list, recognizing him as one of the 100 most influential governance professionals in the boardroom community. In 2019, he was awarded the Bet Steed Leadership Award by the Greater Houston Business Ethics Roundtable, and he served on the COSO Advisory Council for 10 years. With an MBA and BA in Business and Accounting from the University of North Texas, Jim brings a wealth of experience and insights to our conversation today. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to talk to you. Um, in the past, we've had some really nice conversations, and I respect your work immensely. So people today, I think, are going to gain some wonderful insights. And, and I want to dive into this because we've got roughly 30 minutes. Um, in, in your role, um, the position you have with Improtivity, and also I think with COSO, you have an advantage that few have in terms of seeing a really wide range of organizations who have to deal with both common and unique challenges. So I want to tap into that wealth of perspective um, as we talk throughout the uh, half hour. But I want to begin with current events. Have your clients um, ever seen a confluence of challenges like the boards are facing right now? The short answer, David, is absolutely no. Um, I mean, for sure, these are unprecedented times. There's just no playbook for a pandemic that literally shuts down whole industries. Um, how do you go forward in an environment like this? Uh, it is it, it is presented one of the most perplexing, difficult environments um, for CEOs and their boards. Uh, and then you have diversity and inclusion that has popped up um, and has received emphasis over the last month or so. It's never received more emphasis in the boardroom, C-suite, down through the ranks than at any time I can recall, particularly given the spotlight on racial injustice and violence. And CEOs are having to engage in uncomfortable conversations with their employees. So needless to say, all of this adds up to a very challenging environment for boards and their CEOs that few have seen before. And so taken together, the COVID-19 pandemic and the emerging social construct present a very difficult environment in which to run a business putting CEOs under extreme stress. And, you know, don't forget that the CEO also has to run the business and serve the interest of shareholders. In that respect, CEOs are having to face increased shareholder activism, at least up to the onset of the pandemic, the increasing use of ESG to screen investments as corporate, corporate social responsibility to be 
becomes more of a priority and the challenge of deploying transformative digital technologies and processes, products, and services. So um, it's, a, it's an unprecedented environment for sure, David. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me is that you had said, and I'm just jotting some notes down and added a couple of things. When we talk about this confluence, the pandemic would be enough on its own um, to present challenges. But then you threw in some of the cultural elements, um, the economics uh, of the impact of the pandemic, emotional health, whether that's employees or, or even uh, people who supply our organizations. And then you put on top of that the challenge that CEOs have in running a business. That would be a challenge in standard times. Have you seen that this kind of environment has brought boards closer to their CEOs or maybe even closer to each other? Or has it created more, um, I don't want to say conflict in the boardroom, but more maybe disparity of, of viewpoint? It's it's been a, it's a challenging environment for sure. Um, I, CEOs have, are facing significant questions associated. You mentioned some of them, and I think boards recognize that their CEO is under extreme stress, and so it's very important for clarity in the boardroom. It's very important that. Conversations be strategic, a big picture, um, and, and that you know issues that are not associated with the urgency of the day, um, not be presented to distract the CEO. And so, I, you know, I mean, I mean, how do you go forward ensuring the health and safety of employees and customers? I mean, how do you survive when your business model depends on the gathering and concentration of people? Uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, he lives, he uh, has homes in New York and uh, in Miami Beach, and in Miami Beach, he, his he has a very good view of the Atlantic, and out there are anchored many cruise ships. I mean, there they are, all sitting out there. I saw an article where 400 cruise ships all across the world are anchored at sea, many of them subject to hurricane risk, all of them out there rusting in the salt air. I mean, I mean, if you're dependent on the gathering and the concentration of people, I mean, uh, that is an extremely difficult environment for the CEO of those organizations. And how do you, to your point about workplace, the workplace, how do you deploy technology to allow for maximum flexibility and connectivity of your people and your organization so it can continue to work remotely? And as the economy recovers from the lockdown um, or potentially falls back into lockdown, and, and how do you accommodate employees who kids can't go to school? It's amazing how that is being a constant dialogue right now. And how do you preserve mental health, to your point that you mentioned? Uh, if people are working in isolation, commuting 30 feet from their bed to their workplace, I mean, it's... It's a crazy environment, and uh, CEOs are having to improvise in the field on this one. And I'm finding that, you know, boards are kind of rallying around their CEO, uh, providing him or her all the support they can. Um, and again, it's very important for there to be clarity and for the conversation in the boardroom to be strategic and big picture, because that's what it needs. 
Yeah, and there was an article or a, uh, I think a blog post on the Protivity site that you had written um, probably back in March where you know, I think we were starting to see or certainly seeing uh, the beginnings of this, but but maybe not even yet fully understanding the the overall impact of of the vi of the virus and and uh, um, the uh, the pandemic. The article or the post was uh, the people side of COVID nineteen. I think was the name of it. And there were a couple of things that you mentioned in there that I I wanted to bring forward in this part of our discussion because of of a comment you just made. You had talked about the stresses that people are facing, but in that article you said there's also a positive in that you can look at new leaders who emerge from these challenges. Um, it gives you an opportunity to reconnect with customers, uh, to show trust in employees, um, and then to manage this distributive workforce and, and learn from it. And I think there might have even been a survey uh, from Protivity uh, very similar to something we have with the DCRO that said that a really significant percentage of companies are finding that this remote work is more efficient. So when you look at this, you know, particularly this idea of, of uh, the change that's forced in these new leaders that we might find, are you finding now, three, four months after you've written that article, that, that this is true, that you're seeing this kind of discovery by companies? I think everyone's recognized um, the transformative impact that the pandemic experience has had on people's outlooks in many ways. Um, and it's, it's creating what I have called, David, a paradigm change in the boardroom, and um, I mean, you're, 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 we're looking at, at at the impact on the workplace, the need to adjust to post-pandemic customer and consumer behavior, and the revisiting of decisions over the last couple of decades or more to create tight coupling and complexities within the global supply chains. And, and you know, I think it's 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 really complicated all of that. And maintaining connectivity um, is, is 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 paramount. But you know, the thing that that really gets me is that we aren't out of the woods yet. I don't want to sound like right. I'm um, uh, I don't want to or anything. I'm I'm about as optimistic a person as you'll ever meet. Uh, <laughs> But, but, man, we are not out of the woods yet. I mean, almost a third of U.S. households have not made their full mortgage payments in May, June, and July. Uh, we don't know when a vaccine will be available, much less how effective it will be. And will it even be a vaccine? Maybe it's just a flu shot, you know? It doesn't guarantee you won't get it. And what's particularly frustrating as the WHO and the medical scientists can't even agree on whether COVID-19 is airborne or whether it may be a vascular, vascular disease. And even when we get a vaccine, uh, a good friend of mine interviewed uh, um, a CEO on the front on the front lines of developing antibody testing and other t types of tests, even when you get a vaccine, that CEO said, once you get it up capacity to scale, it could take up to a year to run it through the population. And Bill Gates at the Gates Foundation gave a uh, discussion, said it may take two shots, so that could be two times. And so 
We're a long way from completing the transition to the eventual new normal in which physical mobility will not be restricted, safe distancing from others won't be necessary, crowd caps will no longer be imposed, and the risk of returning to lockdown in which people are told to stay at home or in place because of a sudden spike like we're seeing in California um, will be unlikely. So. I think directors and CEOs get it, and I understand there are enormous uncertainties associated with the future. And to your question, they open up the possibility of significant complications over the next one to two years. And again, think about that CEO whose cruise ships are anchored out there in the Atlantic. Think about that person. I mean, is his business or her business going to be even around through this extended period? And think about all other industries that are dependent on the concentration and the gathering of people. I mean, I, I don't like the picture I'm seeing, David. Well, I was going to ask you about that, Jim. When, you, when you're talking with everyone and, you know, this long list that we've just described of things that they're facing, and then you bring forward this idea that things could become even more complicated over the next one to two years, or maybe even over the next one to three months. Do people just throw their arms up in the air, or, or do you find that they're um, being more active in, in thinking about how they might get through this? I think that the key to all this is, I think, Directors and their CEOs and organizations in general are beginning to recognize how critical being adaptive, agile, and resilient is. And, um, you know, we could all throw our hands up in the air because we can't predict the future, because that's beyond our control, right? But, but we can take steps to uh, improve and increase the resilience of our organization in adapting to whatever changes that are taking place. And so, I mean, there, what we learned during lockdown was that the, the organizations that were able to not only they not only did they have the digital technologies that enabled them to maintain connectivity and to work remotely, but it, it's amazing and inspiring to me how they also um, engaged and they were innovate how innovative they were and how how much speed. Uh, to innovate, they were able to demonstrate. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, innovating products and services and processes. You know, making processes as contactless as possible. Making products um, and services as contactless as possible, for example. Um, uh, making the fulfillment process for products as contactless as possible. Those kinds of things, innovating that on the fly, creating innovations that in a matter of days that took before the pandemic took months to do. Right, right. And so that innovative culture 
um, contributed to resilience and uh, having available the, the various technologies that enabled the connectivity with customers um, and, uh, and suppliers, having data on the customer preferences so that they could react and address those preferences. Um, uh, these are the kind of things that that separated companies that were more successful than others during the lockdown and continue to be dis uh, differentiators as we go forward. And, and there's one other key differentiator, and that is having a trust-based culture. Right. Um, that, that having a trust-based culture through this process where everybody's working remote uh, has contributed to uh, being able to get everyone engaged and everyone focused on on what they need to do. Uh, leaders listening to their people, being empathetic, and engaging in strategic conversations. So I think I'd see those organizations uh, managing their way, navigating their way through the crisis. They're not throwing up their hands, and they are prepared. Um, to be resilient, come what may, in the future. The organizations, however, that lack that trust-based culture, um, that are not resilient, don't have the technology they, should, they need, don't have the data about their customers clinging to the status quo, they're in a world of hurt. What you just mentioned about trust, that was something that came very clearly, or trusting employees that came very clearly in that uh, PeopleSide article or the PeopleSide blog post that you had. And my guest last week, Michelle Gelfen, um, has developed this concept of tight and loose cultures and tight cultures being more rule-oriented, loose cultures being more uh, accepting of, of different uh, beliefs and practices. She had talked about how under stress, we tend to move towards tight cultures. We, we want more rules, we want more control but it's loose cultures that innovate um, better. And so to hear you talking about innovation is to say that within this natural response back to tight cultures, there is some looseness being allowed, but it's only there if there's trust. And so I think that was a really key point that you made. And I want to, I want to make sure, because I don't want us to just to focus on COVID, although that's certainly dominating our lives. I want, if it's okay with you, to take us both back in time but also a little bit forward in time. And that's going back 20 years. So you and I have been around for a long time. Uh, we've seen a lot of different crises, a lot of different waves. But one of the things I think that's also very common uh, or very uh, similar between the two of us is this focus on the positive side of risk and the positive side of, of ERM and, and other ways of taking risks. So 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now, um, you wrote your enterprise risk management book. And I'm curious, and you also then contributed to the uh, update of the, the COSO framework on ERM. So I'm curious how over those 20 years, one, how you've seen practices change, and, and I'm assuming for the better. Um, but then I also want to pull a quote out of a, another ProTivity document, um, which talked about ERM helping organizations uh, pursue compensated risks successfully. I thought that was a really nice wording. So can you talk a little bit about how ERM has changed since you first wrote that book, but then tie it to this positive notion of taking risk? Because we know that going forward to deal with COVID or whatever it might be, 
um, there's a lot of risk taking that that's going to need to happen. The idea I was trying to convey 20 years ago, David, in the uh, ERM book was that risk management needed to be elevated to a strategic level and applied enterprise-wide. And I think COSA framed these two concepts well in the first framework that they released in 2004. Um, and uh, it didn't really take very well because it came out, it was released at the time of Sarbanes-Oxley was commanding the airwaves, and so the timing wasn't real good. And it wasn't until after the financial crisis people started realizing that this is the crisis that took place in 2007 and 2008 that people realized how important it was to embrace risk and understand risk and make it a strategic concept. And the, the notion of, of, of uh, taking a positive approach to risk-taking uh, really deals with embracing opportunity and, you know, looking at opportunity and risk um, as two sides of the same coin. And so that's why you get, you look at uh, what's happened recently with the, uh, with the innovation cycles of organizations that fared reasonably well during the during the pandemic, during the lockdown, how innovative they were. And so it was a huge risk, but they turned it around and said, we've got to change. We've got to implement, I mean, it was like a rallying cry, CEOs telling their, telling their people and having the trust within the organization uh, to engage them that we've got to innovate in order to save our jobs, save our company, and execute our business model. We've got to adjust. We've got to adapt um, to make innovations that normally would have taken us months. We've got to get this done over the next 48 hours. I mean, that's, 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 that is stepping out of the comfort zone, David. As you well know, it is, is being comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think that's, that's, that's what it's all about in terms of being positive, in terms of embracing risk. You're stepping into the unknown here. Um, uh, you're you're um, uh, making changes in the business, adapting the business. You're recognizing that the business model itself, the half-life of your business model is compressing. Uh, the disruption that's taking place, that was taking place before the pandemic, um, you know, the changes that would alter the dynamics and fundamentals within an industry, um, it, is, uh, it may have taken 10 years for the industry to change um, 15, 20 years ago today. Not so, not so long. I mean, it's uh, it, it just takes a matter of a very short period of time. And today, we're moving at light speed. 
Uh, it's all about focusing on the customer experience. It's about understanding the table stakes at which to engage customers in your process and in your business and convincing your customers that you are exceeding those table stakes. That's what every single business on the planet has got to do in a pandemic. Um, we just can't assume that people are going to be comfortable sitting on an airplane when everybody's sitting in every seat and middle seats are being occupied. We just can't assume that. I mean, check out what your customers really think. Um, it's, it's a different way of operating and a different way of thinking. It's not going to make us comfortable. It's uh, presumed to be a lot, of a, a lot of risk, but we're turning that risk equation around and seeing it as an opportunity in order to save our business, sustain our business model, and make the necessary refinements uh, to be successful. Does that make sense? It does, and, and I wanted to follow up a little bit on that because you had mentioned data earlier, and I'm wondering if you find, and maybe this is too much of a softball question, um, if you find that when ERM is integrated into the strategic process, that that gives boards a chance to have more trust that the organization is taking smart risks and at the same time gives employees more trust that they can take risk and not face the consequences of a risk that maybe didn't work out. For, for the longest time, I think that most companies, I, I, my, my, my finding 20 years ago was that the, the notion of tying in risk into strategy uh, was more of a European idea than it was an American idea. And um, uh, I think today it's, you know, you kind of fast forward to today, I think it's, uh, I think it's well understood that we should be focusing on risk to the strategy, meaning the risk and executing the strategy. But what what I don't see enough of is focusing on the risk from the strategy, looking at different risk associated with different strategic alternatives, uh, which is especially critical in a fast-moving environment. You have you know this we're talking about. Uh, looking at scenario analysis, stress testing, modeling, those kinds of things, looking at alternative futures. Having a single single view of the future is a fool's errand because nobody knows what the future is going to look like. And so um, I think management's assumptions that underlie the strategy really need to have a close look, a close, a close assessment. Uh, to understand what environmental factors could alter those assumptions to, to the point of making to the point of making the strategy irrelevant or yeah. obsolete, uh, and so they cut the management knows what assumptions, what key variables in the environment to monitor and evaluate over time. Um, I think we need to see more of that, uh, particularly given the unprecedented uncertainty of our times. And, and I, see, I, I think that companies recognize that they have to 
have a nimble view of the future, so that could be that could be better prepared. And so, uh, I have had a, quite a few people tell me that pandemic risk. Everybody knew what it was. Um, you know, it's a gray rhino charging you from from the distance. Um, but you know, nobody really took it seriously. It's one of those low likelihood, uh, high severity risk, and and then people look at each other and they say, well, what, what would we do if there was a pandemic? And say, I don't know. I mean, why should I worry about it? It's such a, a remote op, remote issue. But now we are faced with something that is potentially airborne, and this is you know, if you talk about Dr. Fossey, uh, who advises. Uh, on response to uh, the COVID-19 situation. This is the big one. This is the one he's feared for decades as he's advised multiple presidents. And, and so now it's here. And so um, now everybody's getting an object lesson on, how to, on dealing with and managing a pandemic and also getting an object lesson on how important it is to look at the low likelihood, high severity impacts that could potentially derail the strategy and focusing on how to better prepare the organization to be responsive. That's the game. Um, World-class reaction is an expectation in the marketplace. And when a company is able to demonstrate the ability to weather a, 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 a storm that everybody recognizes um, is uh, Category 5 hurricane proportions, that is a reputation-making statement, David. And, and so we see the companies that are able to, that have been able to weather this COVID-19 this situation more successfully than others, and 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 that has bolstered their reputations. Um, so I think that uh, preparedness, uh, integration with strategy, focusing on the risk to executing the strategy, but also focusing on the risk from the strategy um, are these are things that we're seeing more of today, and in the new COSO ERM framework, were emphasized. There was one other thing that COSO emphasized that I think is very important, and that's making sure that the strategy does not um, get disconnected from the core values of the company. And so, you know, when you see situations where you're looking at a company and its behavior and you're scratching your head, head and asking, what were they thinking, that often is a result of, the, of their executing a strategy that is not consistent with the core values they articulated on their website. And and so that's also very, very important in strategy setting. So there's a whole host of questions and issues uh, that, uh, you know, more fully integrate risk into strategy setting, uh, but at the same time focusing on preparedness, which seems to be the name of the game. And I really like this expression that you used, focused on risks from the strategy. I think that's pretty important to keep this as a, an ongoing dialogue at the board level because we don't just settle in on strategy. It's dynamic. 
But then if you're not also considering what it is you might be missing or what that strategy approach uh, necessarily entails in other risks, I think really important for the dynamic discussion. So we have about one minute left. Is there something that you can leave our listeners with, uh, a place that you would send them to understand more about best practice ERM, innovation, and in board risk governance? If I would just say one thing for your your listeners, and that is, you know, I try to be as observant as I can as to why companies succeed and fail. You know, what makes a company a leader, and what does it do that a leader does not do? I mean, it is the best source of insight that I know, um, and and I would I would encourage you know, you see a company that you admire, you see a CEO who you admire, and you 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 admire what they do and what they accomplish. Try to look under the covers and understand why. What do they do that makes them successful? And it's it's an interesting pursuit. It always yields benefits, David. Yeah, learning learning from those, and I, I think down where you are, HEB is a is an example that a lot of people have put forward for a company that was thinking forward um, about how to deal with crises like pandemics. And um, I've cited them in in my most recent book, and I've seen others cite them as well. Uh, so it is important to constantly be learning. And Jim, that's one of the reasons I had you on here. Um, the decades that you have of experience, the times you and I have had a chance to talk, I've always learned. And I like the positive view. We're in a really, really difficult time, and we know it may get more difficult. But the positive view is still looking for ways to do things better and opportunities, and also to care, I think, for the people, as, as you had pointed out in your, in your blog post. So thank you so much for taking your time today. It's, it's, always, it's always helpful to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, David, for having me.